Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. And if you're watching the replay or on YouTube, thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. I'm so excited to have you here today. And today we're welcoming Monica Zasada to the podcast. If you are looking to renovate or build a home, Monica is the person to talk to. Monica came to the U.S. about two decades ago. Her American friends describe her as so European, and her mom remarks that she has become too American. Now, Monica de dedicates herself to being a mess whisperer. This is a title to which she lays claim in more ways than one. So professionally as a curator of residential construction projects, and personally as an explorer of concepts, people, and places. She sees construction as a depository of valuable life lessons and dishes them out much to the delight and appreciation of her listeners and customers. As a speaker, she is described as engaging, thought-provoking, and entertaining. Now, during the podcast, we discuss so many different and varied things. We talk about some history of Poland, what her definition of home was as a child, what the concept of home really is for her, how you bring a home to life, how the building industry is a flawed process, and how she helps shape it into something better. Taking the stress out of a renovation project, the two most important elements of design, and they're not what you think, how she is like the conductor of an orchestra, the deception of the reality TV renovation shows, different types of construction projects and contracts, managing expectations in your renovation, and then how books enrich our lives. Now, at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes, plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy this episode, make sure you're, you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. I'm so excited to have you here. Now let's get to the interview with Monica. <music> Welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm glad to have you here. Let's just start off with, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you serve, what's going on. My name is actually pronounced Monica in my oh, mother country. Of so Poland. sorry. No worries. I know, no worries. I know one Polish word and it's Yaiko. Oh, an egg. Pretty important. An egg is, you know, very useful. <laughs> I remember. And I'm glad you know this word and not some bad words which are very widely, you know, taught. So good, we are on air. Egg is an innocent well, enough word. I know it from the kids. So my housekeeper's Polish and she's been with us for like 12, 13 years. And her kid, her oldest is 11 and her youngest is like eight or nine. And mm. so they grew up in my house, these kids, watching them learn how to speak, you know, teaching them about different types of food. And they would teach me a little bit of Polish. Oh, so, great. Yeah. yeah. Like surrogate Yaiko grandchildren. Is an easy word. <laughs> yeah, Yaiko, Yaiko is easy. So I used to make fun of them. Like one of them likes eggs and one of them hates eggs. And so we, we'd make fun of, I'd make uh -huh. fun of them, So Well, yes. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I was made in Poland. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this fact, but Poland was basically disappeared for 123 years from the face of the earth, from the maps of the world, because it was partitioned between 
uh, the empire of Russia, Prussia, and Austro-Hungarian empire. So I like to think that, you know, my persistence, maybe, you know, this is where it stems from, the country that wasn't there and is there. And maybe also it's my ability to see the existence of something where it's not necessarily showing. And I grew up in a two-room apartment. They were called the big room and the small room. And three generations of people lived there. So a lot of people, I mean, I slept in the small room with my grandparents. My grandfather would sleep on this military cot that we would fold out every night. I would sleep on a sofa with my grandmother and my little brother in a crib. And then and my parents would sleep in the big room, which basically, you know, served all other functions. So it was our library. It was our den. It was our TV room. And I wish I could say this was also our dining room, but it was too small for us to have a dining table. So the concept of having, a, you know, a dinner, dinner together as a family did not exist. My parents mm. would eat sitting at a coffee table holding their plates in their laps and my brother and I at, at our desk in the small room. So, but, you know, even though our apartment was so tiny, when we had an opportunity to leave and move to a bigger place, I literally could not conceive of such a move because in my consciousness as a child, a home was something that the earliest memories of and where you basically either leave to get married or you die. So mm. no, I would not want to leave my house. Yeah. So my, when did my, you when did you leave? I left after I majored in American literature and I was offered a position at the university. And then I thought, this is so silly. How can I authentically teach literature of the country I never visited? And this desire sort of coincided with the time when, when it was easier for us to come to the United States. I mm -hmm. got an invitation from some family members from, I think, Chicago. But then there was a problem of money for the ticket. I don't know if this is your experience too. When you declare something and you want it bad enough, sort of things aligned, right? So yeah. poof, my best friend's uncle just opened a publishing house and he needed an urgent translation of a fascinating book, How to Live with Irritable Bowel Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> so I translated it in a few weeks, drinking copious amounts of coffee, earning enough money for a discounted international student ticket via Vienna. And I landed in this country with a considerable fortune of $10 in my pocket. That's a lot of money. So, what year was that? It was 92. Wow. 92, yes. So here I was with $10. And, you know, it's funny because now when I reflect on it, it was my curiosity right, that brought me here. I got here thanks to a book, and then I ended up clearly overstaying my welcome by a huge amount of money because of my desire to have home in Poland. You see, the position at the university would be very prestigious, but I would literally need three lifetimes, okay, to save enough money from academic career to purchase an apartment. Mm. So, well, I never went back to Poland, I am still here, and this thread of books... You still in Chicago? No, I am in the Hamptons, New York. Oh, okay. Long Island. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. No, I'm in no, Westchester. Oh, so we are, we are neighbors. <laughs> You're about six hours away from me. It's, it's pretty uh -huh. far. Okay. 
six hours. Is that that okay? I, yeah, because I, I have to go south. I mean, yeah, I'd have to go. I have to go south to get it to get to Long Island, and oh, then I, I have oh, to go across the island mm-hmm, over to the Hamptons. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I could take a boat, but you yeah. could. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably take a boat from New Rochelle, but. Anyway, all right. So, so you're in the Hamptons, but that's not where you were. You were in Chicago. I've never made it to oh. Chicago ever. I landed okay. in New York because my friend, my friend, yes, my lifetime friend was already there. Okay. And, and then I eventually ended up in in the Hamptons. You know, from books and major in literature, I like to say that I'm bringing homes to life, or sometimes I say I'm building castles because. So many people say, you know, my home is my castle. You know, this is how I sort of, I see the concept of home through sort of three layers. So the most obvious one clearly is a physical layer. Home is our shelter, right? And again, when I go to my childhood and I think of how did we use to draw homes, it would be a a triangle of a roof, right? And then two windows, glass windows and a wooden door. But then really, when you think of the homes throughout the world, igloos, for instance, don't have windows. And then I had this other, I had this extremely vivid picture. I was in India and I was stuck in traffic. You spend a lot of time being stuck in traffic. <laughs> and I, I looked to my left and Dr. G, there was this tiny gray concrete cubicle of a home, which was this tiny room, okay, and in place of a window, it had multiply colored plastic bags braided, right, that effectively mm-hmm. uh, served as a curtain. There was no door. There was a piece of cloth in the door opening, and it was pushed aside, and there was a bare bulb hanging from the ceiling, and a woman who was sweeping the floor in this home of hers that housed a bed, a table, and I think it was a hot plate with water boiling. And the amount of dust that she created, and it was right next to the road, there would be probably millions of cars passing by. Yeah. It is just like, oh my goodness. And then when I think on the most visceral level, when I am experiencing my home as shelter, is when I am in bed and there is torrential rain, and wind howling, and I close my eyes, and I feel safe, and warm, and dry, and it's just like, I mean, even talking about it, I literally feel like I want to stretch, there is just no words to convey the sense of, you know, well-being, and how is it for you, spend time appreciating your home as shelter, is it, how is this for you? Well, you know, it's really interesting that you asked that, because when we bought it, we, we kind of, it was bigger than we needed, right? Oh, that's a yeah. good, that's problem to have. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually have two offices in this house. Mm-hmm. I have an office upstairs that I don't use anymore. And then I have this office, which is in the basement. And this room was a gym. And when I remodeled the, I remodeled the other room, which had been a bar and a kind of like a, a second living room. I remodeled that into a full gym with mirrors on one wall and a great big TV and all the things we need. So I don't need a gym membership unless I want to swim and a spa bathroom. So it's got a steam shower and a really nice bathtub, which I don't use very often, but, but it's there. Uh Uh-huh. 
But I do think, I do think about, you know, I mean, one thing that, that has, I've been really grateful for this home throughout Mm -hmm. the pandemic because I traveling a lot and because I would go to different, you know, conferences and whatnot Mm -hmm. and all of the conferences got canceled and I'm still in the process of setting up this particular space, but I've been really very, very grateful to have a space that I can turn into an office. I mean, I recently left medicine and all I do is I do the menopause movement full time now. So it, it's been really, you know, we when we remodeled, we turned, we took our, our dining room, which was in one room and it was like all put away and we moved it into an area where we could like see from the kitchen. Yes, yeah, like you know, more central, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So so you say that you bring homes to life via your curatorship of the whole process. So what is that process and what do you curate? So because the house is just not physical, you know, shelter thing, right? I see mm-hmm. also a house as a showcase of our prized possessions, you know, finds that we found on the flea market. And it's also the place where we do the, what I consider, you know, our emotional and spiritual calibration, right? We, we bring, turn the dials, right? To, to get the sense of equanimity and contentment. And because the home, the concept of home features so prominently in my life, And because in my career, first with the general contracting company, I saw how the process is basically botched. I just declared that there is a better way. There is a better way of doing it, okay? Building homes from scratch or from remodeling homes or... Anything. It it runs the gamut. So it it can be just a vacant land or it can be a house that is demolished and replaced with a brand new house or an existing house that stays within its footprint and it's gutted and then added onto or historical renovation. You know, the process, and this is what a lot of people don't understand or realize, Dr. G, is that even when you are just doing the kitchen reno, you are effectively in a mini construction project because it's easy, right? I mean, you know. Oh, I do. Yes. So building industry is very linear. It's very isolating and it's very competitive. Okay. So what happens? Let me, let me tell you what normally happens so that you can sort of understand the curatorship better. An architect draws drawings. Okay. And mm-hmm. also in the beginning, instead of having an honest conversation about money, Even with people who have a lot of money, somehow I'm finding to my utter amazement that in the very beginning of this whole process, there is just no conversation about it. And I feel that the client could ask an architect, well, what is your, you know, the typical or give me the range of your typical construction projects that you draw for? And there is no conversation as far as I know, at least in the cases that I have helped troubleshoot or curate it, right? And what happens is the architect draws for pricing only kind of plans. They are very rudimentary. All they show is the exterior elevation, whatever you see if you were to walk around your house and see its sides, right? And then it shows floor plans. And a floor plan is something if you were levitating off of the ceiling, you would see the contour of the room, right? Or how many rooms there are. So now the problem already starts there because a lot of clients, first of all, they don't know even what an elevation of floor plan is. Then there is a question of scale. Scale is a very difficult thing to convey because human eye, right, 
works in three dimensions. And the plants kind of squish the home into this flat plane and see it in two dimensions. So the client doesn't have the feeling of the whole scale because you can only really have it when you are in the presence, physical presence of the object or if you are in the room and you say, wow, you know what, I kind of like these low cottagey ceilings or I do want the soaring living room ceiling. So the client doesn't know what is really drawn. They don't understand what they are looking at. Like, for instance, shower niche. And I just was dealing with it last week. That's why it's so fresh in my mind. So a shower niche is something that you have in the shower. It hoses your shampoos or soap. And then we were reviewing the plans. And the client said, why would I have a mirror in the shower? So he thought it was a mirror. So there is this misunderstanding, right, already with the client. And then those very rudimentary plans without schedules, without pulling the materials. I mean, there is a huge difference in cost between, say, an asphalt roof or a cedar roof. Or you can have sub-zero in your house, so you can have kitchen aid, right? You can have, you know, subway tile that is $3.50 per square foot, or you have tiles that are $85 per square foot. And then what happens, so these half-cooked plans are then put out to bid. And this is what I meant to say that this industry is so competitive. Another problem, too many bidders are invited and also they are not of the same caliber. So there is a- That's so true. Totally true, right? Well, I mean, I used a contractor who brought in people, but Uh like the different people that he brought in were, I mean, we had a pretty good- electrician but the painters were shitty and the people who redid the floors were really not that good and when I had to repaint the house again Mm -hmm. um, he didn't take a cut he's just like said here use this people (laughs) these people are better oh I see so home construction projects horror stories out there right oh yeah yeah so just so it always takes longer than you think and it always costs about you know 30 percent more Yes, it, but it does doesn't have to. The process needs to be curated. Okay. So going back to the competitive bidding, so there is a full-fledged general contracting company with big overhead, and then there is a full, you know freshly made contractor who is you know who is operating out of the back of his pickup truck. And nothing wrong with that. What is wrong with that is that how can you then level the bids and compare them as apples to apples? So what has happened a lot of times is the project simply never goes to production. Everybody loses. The client loses, the architect loses, all the segments of building industry lose. There is no project because the client thought, you know, it's going to cost X and this is already double of what they wanted to pay. Another scenario is they just say, okay, well, they choose the lowest bidder, which is a mistake. You ought to do the middle bidder especially with half-cooked plans. And then the Mm. project kind of like fumbles through, right? The client thinks he's ripped off. The contractor fights with the the architect because, you know, then of course the architect, once the client says, let's go, proceeds to then draw for construction plans, which are totally different from the for pricing plans. All of a sudden, the contractor says, oh my goodness, you want upper cabinets in your kitchen, which were not depicted in the floor plans because there was no little dotted line there. So it's just totally botched and everybody is constantly defending their positions because they were thrust in this situation by 
flawed process that is just blooming and is widely used in the building industry. So when I think about this, this is just, it's wrong because the home is, and it's a big word, it is a sacred place, okay? Yeah. So why I do understand the need to know the cost, I mean, I'm reminding you, I landed in this country with $10, so I totally know the value of money, and the budget needs to be part of your project. In Mm -hmm. fact, budget, time, and quality are the first things that should be discussed with the client, because the importance and the chronology, how they are they are decided upon, informs the entire process of how this all ought to evolve. So for a client for whom, and by the way, it's a myth and total lie. If someone tells you, I can handle the three with the same, uh, you know, with this, with the, same, the budget and quality and time, okay. you can't. So the first one that you choose, and let's say it's quality. Right, then the quality. So the client insists on high finishes and quality. Usually, that means that it will take more time to acquire, so the budget will definitely suffer and it will cost more money. So, then mm-hmm. you do the planning accordingly. Maybe you pre order certain things, knowing full well that the lead time is 12 months and not, not three weeks or not something that can be acquired in some store or in some showroom, right? Right. So it's just extremely important to be doing it from that perspective. So what if somebody isn't planning on doing any sort of renovation and just wants to, you know, make their home more sacred or make their home more cozy? Like me, I mean, I've already done my renovations, right? Especially this room that I'm in where there's like furniture left over that I really need to get rid of because I don't have room for it anymore. There's a TV over here that I never use. You know, I've got a whiteboard now and and things like that. So how do you suggest that somebody, you know, bring their home to life or even starting with one room to Mm -hmm. start to create more of a sacred space? Well, I know there are two most important elements of design, okay? It's light and it's colors. You can literally make a white wall look like a showpiece. If you hang maybe a piece of art and it doesn't have to be expensive at all, it can be a black and white picture, you know, blown out in a nice frame with perhaps, you know, a spotlight on this piece of art. And Mm -hmm. also very important to install dimmers on your light because you can have, you know, various. And I am also a big believer that you ought to have multiple layers on light, of light, not just overhead light, because overhead light kind of, you know, casts shadows on you. And you totally have to have two lights to apply your makeup. Men don't know it. Two lights, you know, that that, that light up your face, you know, from If you're one of those ladies who wears makeup. (laughs) I'm not. I don't wear makeup anymore. I gave it up. Only for photo shoots. That's it. Only for photo shoots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yes. So light and color, right? And then also decide on what it is that is really important. So the house is also a showcase of our prized possessions, right? I think I am into like less is more. So just donate, you know, put out things that you no longer use that don't bring you pleasure and fill your house with things that really matter. And even if other people tell you they are bizarre. So for instance, I have this metal chair 
that I picked up in a store that I was just about ready to leave and very disappointed I found nothing. And I saw it at the last minute. So we were supposed to meet. And I am talking about this chair like it's a character because it is. So it is metal and black and you kind of need to sit on it primly, but it has a little swivel seat. So it's kind of like, hmm, you are a little top here in the back, but we can have a conversation. And, you know, men have such strong reaction to it because they say, gee, you know, the only thing missing is like the metal cage to put on your head and electrocute yourself. So definitely it's a conversation piece and it's good to sure. have a conversation piece in a home when there is this awkward moment, you know, in during a cocktail party and people don't know what to say. Well, here it is, your conversation piece. Your chair is not only, you know, for, for sitting. And speaking you know, of the pool. Just speaking of conversation pieces, we've been to some of the top restaurants in the world, you know, back when we could travel and, and we... And we went to Noma in Copenhagen when it was number three. And we're big foodies. We've been to Alenia. We've been to you know some of these really great restaurants. And so what I've taken to doing is having all the people that are involved in the kitchen and the chefs and us sign the menu. And then we'll we'll frame that. And it's in our dining room. So we've got all these mint signed menus of places we've been mm-hmm. in our dining room, you know, high-end restaurants, which is kind of fun. This is, you know, it's so funny you are, you are mentioning that because I also above my dining table have a menu from Air France flight, which I took mm. to celebrate one of my significant birthdays. And I mean, I thought it was unreal with just, you know, some designer pajamas. And I won this flight by uh, bidding on something. I forget what it was. And I ended up in Paris. And yes, to kind of have this cherished memory, I... Yeah. I also framed the, the menu from the plane, from the flight to Paris. And it's every time it's it's there to remind me about that. So Air France has a good first. I mean, they have a first class and they have like a business and then they have a really like first class that's like 10 times more than, than their business class. Mm-hmm. And I've never flown that, but I have flown Korean first class. Oh, okay. And they had the nicest Korean Korean Air and Lufthansa from so Korean Air from New York to Seoul was really really good. There were only three of us in first class, and we got like special food, and we got we got pajamas, and so I still have those. It's, oh yeah, it was really good. Other first class that I thought was really good was Lufthansa from Los Angeles to Munich, and that was there were only eight people in that first class. Not so, bad. Yeah, Not yeah. Bad. My husband is German, so we do fly Lufthansa a lot. Uh, yeah, Lufthansa tends to strike a lot. That's the only problem. Mm. But, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's good to be pampered, right? And I feel that homes, our homes are where we ought to pamper ourselves. And why would we be bringing homes to life in a style that is not pampered? You yeah. know, the process pampered, the whole the whole team, the whole people that are involved in, in creation of that home, it, 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 it ought not to be built on, you know, of a feeling of defensiveness and, you know, resentment and just all kinds of other bad feelings. And then yeah. when, when this is created the right way, I remember we were just, we completed a four-hour on-site meeting no bad feeling in the air. It was just this process of co-creation. We were deciding on lights. Again, lights are very important. And there should be multiple layers on them, not just overhead light, but lamps, right? And then the lights that are highlighting, like we were talking about, the light, the, the art on your walls. And the client 
outside and she said, Monica, construction is better than sex. <laughs> I mean, you don't hear that too often, do you? No, no. But here, here you are, right? The, the construction is a horror story in most cases or like at least like it was kind of okay to like, wow, construction is better than sex. So, you know, it is possible to create this collaborative team of like-minded individuals who are creating to the same goal that are just co-pilots of one of the things. So I just want to ask, do you have a construction company? Do you have a designing company? What is your actual role? Are you the person who brings people together? Okay, so the best way to put it, and this is how my client put it, they say you are for construction project what a conductor is to an orchestra. You can have a fabulous architect and a designer and a client and all these positions which are, you know, which are crew members of the contractor. And I direct everything. So I keep So you're like a project manager for construction? Yes. Yes. Okay. However, I, I mean, I'm just trying to make make it make sense to me. I mean, some people call me, you are like the glue. People call me a facilitator. They call me the boss. Because again, there has to be someone who is directing it. And the project manager, you know, only comes to play in the construction once the construction starts, right? The best results are when I am talking to a client, when they are just thinking about a project and this project can mean many things. So with a client I just started working two weeks ago, they have been looking, believe it or not, for nine years. They had been looking in the Hamptons to buy something, but because they had heard all these horror stories about how construction can go wrong, how you will go bankrupt and you have seven, you know, nervous breakdowns, they never considered Mm. anything but a turnkey place. For nine years of intense looking, they found nothing. And then they talked to another client of mine whose project I finished last year, and he just said, you need to talk to Monica. You just, you know, open up your eyes. And then we started talking and immediately, you know, three possible possibilities came to mind because there are beautiful homes in Sag Harbor. By the way, Sag Harbor is the coolest place on earth, I think. Sag Harbor is cool. I agree. Sag Harbor is cool. It is. It has this different vibe. It's not very, you know, it's not full of itself. It has, you know, five and dime store. And I like Montauk too. Yes. Yes. Montauk Montauk is very, very down to earth. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, so thanks to this, we are looking at homes that are historic, so they cannot be demolished. Okay. And then there are certain restrictions within the property. But I am excellent, again, from having grown up in the room, in the small room and the big room thing. I am good at, you know, at positioning things. And of course, I work with fantastic architects and fantastic yeah. designers and then the crews. And, and I only do projects with one general contractor, like you said, your general contractor, mm, you know, he was good, but maybe not the painters, I believe you said, right? So yeah, he didn't, he didn't hire the best people that was, you know, and he, and he found that out too. I mean, you know, I think that was like the first time he'd used a couple of the, you know, the people that he used and, and, you know, you live and learn. It's okay. You live and learn. And, you know, it is a matchmaking process and it took me years, you know, to find Mm. the, the best people. And you also need to understand that, Depending on the personality of the client, some architects are brands. 
right? So they are not interested in crafting and designing something that would be the reflection of a client. They are more interested in, you know, perpetuating and doing yet another brand structure. And that's fantastic. This is what they are known for, right? So the client who has very strong aesthetic preferences will not work well with an architect of that kind. You need an architect that is just going to go with you and be your partner in designing everything. So yeah, so with this client, I'm super excited because we are looking at three at three different properties. And you know, one is small, but it is on a prestigious street. And because we we decided these three important elements, which is quality, budget, and time, we know what quality means because you also need to to define what quality is. So for him, it is he needs a big loan because he has two boys who love playing soccer. He's from Europe also. Yeah. But then he's mindful of the budget. So I asked, for instance, is that okay if his two sons uh, share a bathroom? Because bathrooms and kitchens are tend to be, I mean, you can also have a very expensive living room, but they tend to be expensive elements in your project. And he said, totally, yes, because it's more important for them to have more bedrooms and not necessarily with a bathroom, you know, attached to all of them. It is a process. And again, so and from the beginning, we, we talked about budget as well. Yeah. So then, well, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking about the project that I did. And, you know, we had this designer who brought people together and made a lot of connections you know, we were going to do one thing and they asked for like just one price that would pay all of them. It felt really sketchy, like, because there there wasn't price transparency. It wasn't like this person's getting this much, this person's getting this much, this person's getting this much. They just wanted one price. Oh, you know, it just felt really sketchy to me that instead of saying, okay, the architect's going to get this, the designer's going to get this, construction guy's going to get this. It was all just like, this is one price. Mm -hmm. So... so where are you paying the architect separately and the designer separately? And then no, I was supposed to pay. I was supposed to pay one person, and then they they were going to dole out the money. And it just I don't know the whole the whole thing was so sketchy to me that we we ended up going with a different architect and changing the plans and not doing that. It just wow. it just was super sketchy. It just uh-huh. I mean we I, I still worked with them. I mean I I really love the contractor. I don't think I'd use the designer again. But I mean not to say anything bad about her. I mean she she mm-hmm. did her job and it was good. You know one of the things you. you we're talking about how an architect will will build a 2D model. One of the things I really like about, you know, modern technology is that you can actually, you know, use 3D rendering and see what things are going to look like in, you know, inside of a room yes. on a computer. And that that's, mm-hmm. that's very helpful because you can pick things up and move things around. And, and that's kind of neat. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, you know, I, I used to watch those HGTV you know, renovation shows, right? There's Love It Enlisted, there's Property Brothers and stuff. And I've always thought that their budgets were super low. Thank you. This I was is- like, wait, but this, this, this $50,000 is going to get you like, it's going to get you somebody's armpit. I mean, it's not. <laughs> totally. So, I mean, ridiculous. Set, and set horrible expectations for people. I don't even know how they come up with this, but it's very true. It's just like reality shows, right? I mean, how true yeah. is the reality show? Please. I'm glad you are bringing it up. It is totally true. And then going back to your feeling of sketchiness, right? It was a little unusual that this is how it was because how in my curatorship, what happens is so, so the, the client pays me directly, right? And my fees don't have anything to do with cost. 
right? So I am not vested in having the project grow from, you know, whatever, right, to double. I am vested in getting the project to play out according to these three components, quality, budget, and time, right? So I am not vested. My fee is not bigger because the project costs money. You don't take a piece of the total price. You just charge charge a flat fee. No. No, because that would really be a sort of conflict of interest, I feel. So it's, it really works and it builds trust, right? And then the architect is paid directly. And then also you see with the architects, what happens is bigger, bigger architectural firms charge a fee for the design, right? To draw the drawings and, and do the specification, uh, book specification. And then if they stay, which they most often do to, to oversee construction, they charge a fee. Also, you know, it's a, it's a percentage usually. It is also similarly with the contractor. It was sketchy because you couldn't see the pricing, right? Right. There was a tra- price transparency and it bothered me. Aha. Uh-huh. So you see, so there are two types of contracts that you can have with the contractor, right? One is a so-called cost plus project. So you need to know that each construction project, again, even if it's just a kitchen reno, there will be, there are 17 um, major, major categories in construction, right? And you will get the breakdown of all these categories and each has a subcategory. So sometimes you can literally have a bill that is like 127, I'm making it up, items long. And with cost plus construction, which I think you would like the most, Dr. G, Probably. Is, you will get a bill, okay, and then you will get a copy of every single invoice or the ticket from the lumber yard, full transparency. So you can have a bill of 200 pages sometimes, right. and then a contractor charges a fee as they should because, yes, they are not doing it you know, as a hobby because some people say, oh, how can the contractor charge me the fee? And you see the contractor, is they have a huge job. They man the project, right? They, they provide a supervisor on site and they pay every single, you know, they pay tile, tile installers, they pay framers, you know, roofers, flasher, windows. Electricians, yeah, electrician. So that would be the best for you. That would be the best type of contract. So it's cost plus contract. Another type of contract is what's called stipulated sum. Uh, that works only if you really have full-fledged plans and specifications where nothing that's drawn leave anything to interpretation because then the contractor can give you a solid price and then you don't necessarily see, you know, you, you can see the value of, of each line item like plumbing, but you don't see the, the copies of the bills because they just, the contractor tells you it's going to be $10,000 and then they bill you by billing it as per percentage of completion mm-hmm. rather than as bills come in, which is the case with, with cost plus project. Yeah, no, that's, this is great. I mean, considering some sort of a renovation, you know, a lot of us will just say, okay, I want to renovate. And then we'll just go out and, you know, we don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. And so primarily you work in the Hamptons, right? And you're, you're very regional. You don't work across the whole country or do you... I- I do. I do things remotely. I do. I know I also because like in your own experience, in my experience, because we know how complex construction is. Mm -hmm. And even with the best intentions, even with the best team, with everybody working towards the same goal, construction will remain a complex thing. I mean, there are people 
that our marriage is crumbling, you know, under the stress of construction. So I do offer, yeah. I do offer, you know, construction therapy and I offer, you know, trouble <laughs> I love it. There are people well, who come, you know, with me and say, listen, I don't understand why my budget doubled. They, yeah, they yeah, it's true. It. I mean, there's just so many surprises that can happen. When we redid our house, we we did two bathrooms upstairs and the kitchen at the same time, and we lived through it. And so we were, you know, in the middle of the night, we were going down to the powder room. We're using the shower in the basement. It was rough living through that. I mean, we we got a nice kitchen out of it. We've got two nice, you know, bathrooms, and then I eventually re- remodeled the basement. And it was a lot easier doing the basement remodel after having gone through the kitchen and two bathroom remodel. And so I think it would have been nice to have a guide. And it seems like that that's, you know, kind of what you do is you really, you know, because you've done it so many times. It's almost like, you know, when we buy a car, right? Yeah. How many cars do we buy in our lifetime? We buy maybe 10 cars, you know, Even that, Even that right? yeah, yeah, if yeah. that, and, and then we, we go in and we think, we think that we're getting a good deal because, you know, we negotiated, you know, mm-hmm. we think we're good negotiators and we're working with people who sell 80 cars a month, you know, and if you don't think that that guy who sells 80 cars a month is taking one out on you, unless you're buying a Tesla, right? Because Tesla is just priced the way it is, you know, and so it's kind of like the same thing without a guide, somebody who knows the industry to help you through it, it can be daunting. Construction can be really, really daunting. So I guess I think what you do, what you bring is you, you know, you you help people do renovations with purpose. And then you help them manage their expectations. Thank you. Yes, this is what I wanted to say that expectations are play such a huge role, right? It's so that is a huge part, yes, of what I do. Managing expectations, keeping everyone accountable, full transparency, right? The the spirit of collaboration and again working towards the common goal. And my value also comes from the fact that again, someone for the third time I'm saying it ten dollars in my pocket, I do understand how to make the money works, you know, in in the smartest way, because you don't have to be throwing money at things. It can be very, very well spent. And it's easy. It's easy to throw money at things in a construction project. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have somebody who's been there before, uh, this is something I can actually say from my own experience. I mean, if if I had had you back in 2013, when I started 2014, when I started my renovations, we probably would have spent, I would say a third less than we did. You know, I don't like to toot my own horn, but <laughs> I would think that would be probably the case. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's really it's, there is no need to be throwing money and not getting in the end of what, what you want and then hating the entire experience and then hating everybody involved. Why would you do this? Like I said, yeah, and then you have all oh. this bad energy in, inside your house. Yes. After, and you know, you it's, it's how, how can you enjoy it? Exactly. You are walking <laughs> through the rooms and say, oh, here is where I had a fight with my plumber and here is when I was screaming at the electrician because they were not hanging the light when they were supposed to or yeah. or it was the wrong light and then it's like and then I got this list you know from the contractor and and they ripped me off so yes managing expectations is one of the things and humor goodness gracious humor saves us all yeah like well you know I like to say I, I learned this from one of my mentors but expectations are the killer of joy how true mm. expectations of the killer joy so when you when you have you know you, you set a goal and then you kind of let go of it 
and mm-hmm. let the universe handle it. And that's, that's, I think, where you can come in and, and help direct things and, and make, make them better for people. I just wanted to ask you about, real quickly, you, you wrote here on your, your outline that, that you wanted to talk a little bit about the priceless value of books. So can we, can we talk about that for a second? Absolutely. Someone who majored in American literature, please. Yeah. So I think that, you know, not I, I don't think, I know the books are, they are so priceless because I do put a lot of value on precision of language, okay, or the intent of expression. Like I'm, I'm told I'm a very good communicator. And I love the thrill of, while reading a novel, finding some very complex idea expressed in this ideal, perfect language. Mm, That's really true. I mean, there there was, I don't remember what it was I was reading. It's been a while since I've like taken a quote out of a book, but I remember the middle of the night and I'm speaking into my notepad, this, Mm -hmm. this quote, and so I'm speaking and, and my, my wife wakes up and says, what, why are you talking to me? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm not talking to you. I'm just speaking this quote. I wanted to remember it. And so, yeah. So, so every once in a while, I mean, I read a lot of books. I probably read 50, 60 books a year. And every once in a while, there's something is said so eloquently that I'll just go back and reread it and reread yes, it. You know? I would never come up with it. And, and I mean, you wouldn't believe it. I do the same thing. I am, yeah. I am speaking to my phone and my husband is like, why would you be mm. speaking at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> so that's, that's the same thing. Yeah, and yeah. every yeah, once in a while, you see, you know, think about like when, when somebody's able to capture the beauty of a sunrise or, mm. or the, the Steinbeck did it really well. Steinbeck, um, he, he would talk about the best time to fish, you know, in the afternoon when, as the sun was setting and the way that the sun would hit the water. I mean, he just did such a beautiful job of explaining that. I mean, you're American, you know, Steinbeck and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. did you read Grapes of Wrath? I did. Yeah, it was part, oh. of, my, part of my... Grapes of Wrath, such a negative, 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 negative novel. So, ugh. It, it is. It's still really but gross. You know, I think it's needed to be written. And that's another thing that there is a book for anybody. There that's is true. a book for anybody and the book for anything. To me, it's like, you know, being in the presence of a book, reading it, it's very visceral, it's very emotional. I like, I Mm -hmm. literally feel it on my DNA level. And then there is this delicious, delicious cerebral exercise. I have to ask you as an American lit person, what is your favorite American novel and your favorite American memoir? You know, I loved, I loved Moby Dick. This was actually, okay. this is... Um, is that American? This, that, that, I don't think Moby Dick Herman, was it. Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. Melville was American or he was British? Yeah. Oh, he's American. Okay. He was American, yes. Okay. So I loved this whole idea of the voyage and the pursuit of something that is so consuming for us. And then all these different characters. And as love, but I have to say, as love, as much as I loved the piece itself, what I loved even more, more was the literary criticism. I mean, there are volumes written about yeah. Moby Dick, right? So I wrote it from the perspective, I think the title is, you know, Moby Dick, Herman Melville, Moby Dick, Transcendentalism Revised, because transcendentalism mm-hmm. is also such a very, you know, important concept in American literature. So I, I couldn't tell you the memoirs. I can't. I just have so many 
Have you read Educated by Tara Westover? No. So I highly recommend that. That's that's one yeah. of the best memoirs I've ever read. I mean, I think, you know, for me, if I were to pick mm-hmm. one author that I think has been very influential in my life, it would be Hemingway. Okay. So, awesome. you know, Old Man and the Sea and then A Movable Feast. Those are probably the two, the two books that really, yeah, yeah really moved me. It is very difficult to choose one because also I feel, yeah. you know, we evolve, right? And we have different we have different considerations at every given moment in our life. And sometimes we want something that's very uplifting. Sometimes we want something that is really, you know, maybe, you know, encourages us to look at some painful things in our mm-hmm. life. So it is extremely difficult. Yeah, it's extremely difficult for me. But Yes, books are just, you know, books, like I said, it's so funny that it's kind of like a theme in my life, literature, yeah. books and homes and just, you know, and one of my favorite books is, I don't know if you can see it's in them on my mantle, there is a book by Robert Collier. He was an American publisher and an author himself. Mm-hmm. And in these seven volumes, I, I found them in a flea market recently, okay, I haven't yet read them, but I am getting like literally goosebumps. Okay. They are, they are signed by Robert Collier. Okay. And in the first volume, like five first sentences, he says, if I had more money than I know how to spend and all the time in the world, he's asking the reader, what would be your pet philanthropy? And he says, mine would be homes. I would give homes <laughs> to everybody. I mean, it's like, what? Wasn't he a copywriter, Collier? Robert Collier? Also, also. Yeah, copywriter. yeah. And I think it was published in 1925. And mm. in this book, there was this handwritten note by him, okay? Wow. In says, I mean, it's signed by him. Yeah. Robert yeah. Collier. And, and then he says... As for the, so he says also, he quotes one of the people that the guy read the book and he said in two days, these books gave more to him than 40 years of different courses that he, that he did, right? And then he closes this little note, as far as for the cost of the books, just remember this, if within six months you cannot trace directly to them at least $500 of, and this is capitalized, additional earnings, send them back and I will immediately refund every cent you have paid to me for them. So you can feel perfectly safe in sending your first payment of $1 <laughs> or your full payment of $6.85. Your money it's original sales letter. But can you believe it? Someone who pays $6.85 and he says within six months you will get $500. What return on investment that is? Is it a return on investment or is it just a really, really good risk reversal guarantee? Who, don't forget, who don't forget. I, the, I mean, this is this is the, the he's the author of the author. Our current of our current sales letters. You know, I mean, they've been mm-hmm. perfected by by pin, plenty of guys since him. But Robert Collier, the Robert Collier letters. I think I have some books by Robert Collier just on copywriting. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, yeah so it, really interesting. We were talking about on return on our investment. Yeah. I mean, there should be really a, an academy that people should go. You know, the clients could go, and you know, I am like thinking maybe I should open this academy now it just came to me to really teach people how to go about it in the right way you know because Mm -hmm. home is such paramount thing and it is 
for many people, it is one of the biggest, it's not the biggest investment. So naturally, it brings all these emotions. And why not make the whole process be a positive emotion? It's just, yeah, it's a yeah. brain. So how do people get a hold of you? Uh, my website, which is www.de-maziing.com. Uh, D-E-M, what is it? D-E-M. D-E-M-A-Z-I-N-G, which is amazing because I am a lot of how, how okay. this thing came about was the clients thought, oh, you know, with this construction project and complexity, I feel like I am in a maze and you are such a demazer. I demaze mm. the maze, hence the demazing. You can send me an email, you can schedule a no strings attached tool up chat, you know, to tell me your, your problems or we can dive into that much deeper remotely. And then if you have a project, you know, we can we can talk about about me managing it really from the very idea in your head to your house warming party. That's when so everybody awesome. likes everybody. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and we'll we'll hook you up the demazing.com in our show notes. Any parting words for our podcast listeners? I would say take care of your home, take care of your books. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Now, if you have questions about the topics covered in this or any other podcast, I invite you to open a conversation with me via email at info at menopausemovement.com or on Facebook Messenger through my Facebook page at Dr. Michelle Gordon. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N. I also want to invite you to join in our next beta group. Here at the Menopause Movement, we are always trying out new methods of teaching and the best ways to get on top of your menopause symptoms. We regularly run beta test groups where we create a learning experience valued at $2,000, but at no cost to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. To get notified of our next beta group, simply sign up at beta.menopausemovement.com. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. I appreciate you. 